So, welcome back to the Black and Raw podcast. I am your host, Tina Koda, Tondaraya, Gunza Abaya. No, I ain't going to repeat that. Here is a podcast that is creating the dialogue and the space for Black men to be their most authentic selves. Now, my guest today makes the claim that he has seen the most Black cinema in the world than anyone else. He has seen the most black films than anyone else in the world. That's his claim. And I think he kind of can say yes to that. I can kind of agree with that. I'm not really going to fire money, you know what I'm saying? Because the person that created the Black Urban Film Festival can really have a claim to being the person that has seen the most black cinema. So I have already titled him the godfather of black cinema. So the godfather of black cinema is called Emmanuel Ama Yosinwe. And so Emmanuel comes onto the podcast today to talk about the beginnings of Boff Studios, how he got into black cinema, um, where his inspirations have come from throughout his life. We talk about some of the films that have inspired him. And um, we also touch on his amazing wife, Claire, um, who I think was listening to this conversation actually, um, which was kind of cool to be fair. So no complaints here. We talk about um, her journey um, and how she, um, actually I won't, um, I won't spoil it for you, but just know that um, she overcame obstacles um, and was really vulnerable with what she ended up creating. Um, and so we also talk about Emmanuel's new film that is coming out on the 26th of October called Absolutely Marvelous. Um, and that is really interesting, actually. So um, I think you guys will like that. Um, and I can't wait to see that, to be fair, when it's out. Um, and yeah, we, we talk about a lot of good things in this episode, actually. Um, I think I'll actually let you in on a little snippet um, of what you've got to look forward to um, in this episode. So uh, bear with me just a second when I do some edities or... Transition shit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Give me a second. And, you know, I guess in the UK, uh, I've been very fortunate, along with my wife Claire, to develop some great relationships with some very talented people. You know, Justin being one, Babby and Femi, the late Victor being others, and so many others, which I could kind of reel off over the course of this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it, relationships are like black oil. You know, it's, it's very important to hold on to those relationships. And what the festival has been able to do um, through having the showcase of the annual um, event is to see um, the journey that filmmakers and writers have made. Um, and that's only really been possible because of the fact that diversity is now something that the industry has caught up with in many ways. You know, it's, it's been a, it's never been a great time to be in the industry as a black creative. So in many ways, my work is done um, in terms of being that figurehead for diversity and representation, because it, it seems obvious that the whole industry understands how basic that is. Let me not say important. This is, it's fundamental. It's basic. Yeah. 
represent uh, black experiences and just people that have felt marginalized for so long. It, it, it just makes sense to make sure that those voices are heard. And not only are they heard, but feature. Not yeah. Michael B. Jordan. But I'm, I'm, I'm currently in post-production on a documentary um, about the family of the boxer Joe Joyce, a British okay. boxer. Um, Joe's mom is uh, Nigerian and British, although Joe was born here. But um, Joe's family background from his dad's side of the family, um, Scottish Irish, and then mom's side of the family, Igbo Nigerian, which is where I'm from as well. So we've got yeah. similarities. And the story principally is about Joe's mother, who is blind, who was born blind. Okay. And our camera spent the last two years just kind of filming Marvel and obviously the family. Um, and just kind of that premise of imagining yourself being the mother of a boxer but not being able to see them fight in the ring that is going through and that's her name um and that's that's been the premise of the film so um then i obviously read the magazine and i saw menlik shabazz's name in there i thought wow is that the menlik shabazz who did burn an illusion so before you know it you've kind of seen the answer um, and then I went to film festivals that they had annually every September in London, got to meet Menlik in the flesh. Um, and because of who I am, I just said to my, I said to him, is there any work? Can I work for you? Um, and then the rest nice. of the is history. So he gave me a summer job. Um, first day in the office, the door was unlocked, um, walked straight in. It was like Christmas day. He had videotapes, VHSs, DVDs all over the place, or black films, and I thought, wow, okay, this is yeah. this is what I want to do. <laughs> um, so guys, I hope you liked what you heard there, and I'm looking forward to listening to this episode. I won't keep you here any much longer, but all I wanted to say was that if you want to find out anything that we talk about, um, go on to the show notes. Um, I also really wanted to ask you if you could rate this podcast on Spotify and iTunes. It helps the podcast grow. Um, or I'd rather you share it with somebody. Um, either one, actually, because both help more people listen to these episodes. So I hope you guys like this episode. And um, yeah. Here is my conversation with the godfather of black cinema, Emmanuel Amiroli Hosinwe. It's all right. Yeah, so welcome to the Black and Roll podcast. It's really good to have you on. I'm glad we got to do this. Thanks for having me. Great to be on the podcast. It's all right. It's all right. Um, and so I would have given you, I would have given my audience a bit of an introduction about you. Um, and I'm sure we'll also get onto everything else as well. But I thought having, um, someone well versed in sort of black culture and black film and cinema, um, I, I sort of maybe have got to sort of ask you maybe what is your, it's very hard, these questions, but like maybe what is your favorite black film piece or TV piece or even, one that I guess inspired you, if that is easier than because favorites hard, isn't it? <laughs> There's so many favorites, but favorite is very hard, um, especially when you've made one yourself, because you always gotta obviously um rate your own work first before anyone else's. But um yeah. in terms of a black film that inspired me, I mean there's been so many, but I think 
one that I've remarked on in previous interviews and just one that's always stayed with me is Have Plenty. Um, actually, there's two films I'll mention, Have Plenty and Gang Tapes, which is okay. quite pressing because Leo, who was associated with Gang Tapes, passed away recently, which was a massive shock. You know, he was oh, only okay. 57. Oh, and I had young. the... Very young. Um, and I had the pleasure of meeting Coolio once um, when he was promoting um, an album of his um, back in the early 2000s. Um, Coolio is everything that you expect. He's lively, boisterous, cheeky grin, cheeky wink, um, but very intelligent, um, great conversationalists. Um, and yeah, so, you know, he was involved in this film called Gang Tapes, which when I first watched Gang Tapes back in... 2003 um it was fascinating because the film opens with a carjacking in yeah. the you know hollywood hills you've got this white family just kind of sightseeing and the next thing you know you hear these youths uh they smash up the car and they take over the camcorder so the audience is watching a family home video okay. um, they take over the carjacking and basically the film is about life in the hood and it's all told through video diaries with the camcorder. And that's how the film is shot. Um, and obviously at that time, you had films like Paranormal Activity and The Blair Witch yeah. Project, that same kind of model of point of view. Um, and for me, that's really what excites me uh, about cinema in general, just that ability to disrupt the norm, um, whether it's how it's shot to what kind of stories are told and who's telling the stories and what themes are put out there. And Gang Tapes, which, like I said, involved Kudo from a music point of view, was a, a film that fascinated me. What fascinated me even more with that film was how I got to see that film was through a distributor called MIA, um, which was run by Lawrence Ronson, um, whose son is actually the DJ, Mark Ronson, which I didn't know. Ah. I only knew about that in later years. I didn't know <laughs> Ronson. Um, but it was fascinating going to his office in um, Marlebone at the time, or yeah. Marylebone, or some people would pronounce it. I've never mm-hmm. quite understood Marlebone and Marylebone. But anyway, so I went to his office and, um, you know, had a chat with him and it was fascinating that he was interested in urban movies. He had a whole catalogue of films and obviously Gang Tapes was one of those films. And I happened to be working at Black Filmmaker Magazine at the time, um, which was run by Menlik Shabazz, who I'm sure we'll get on to talk about um, over the course of the podcast. So that's how I kind of my path with Kula and Gang Tapes and even to this day now, next year will be 20 years since that film was released. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone that hasn't seen Gang Tapes, I would implore you to kind of find it wherever you can online and, and watch it, just for the way it's told, very authentic film, great young talent, um, actor you've probably never heard of, but that's besides the point, but it's just one yeah. of the that has stayed with me to your question. And then the other film that I mentioned, Have Plenty, was a film I watched on Sky Movies. Um, okay. In this kind of mid-90s, 2000, which seemed to be like a golden age for watching black cinema on TV, um, or just being in the presence of black cinema. And the premise for that film was it's a film about a film about a film. So essentially you've got a screenwriter, uh-huh. uh, who has writer's block over New Year's Eve. And to kind of get out of the writer's block, he spends New Year's Eve with um, 
a girl that he's always fancied, but has never quite had the kind of courage to... Courage, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can ask you out, can I marry him? Can I have babies with you? All of that kind of stuff. <laughs> we, we've all felt it. We've all felt it. Indeed, indeed. So that's that's the storyline within the storyline. And then uh-huh. that storyline then becomes the premise for his film. So again, uh, okay, with, with this, that's what the film Have Plenty is about. So again, just the format of the film was something that has stayed with me. And the fact that it's a black film that's able to kind of tell a romantic you know, comedy like that is, is for me, it was great. I and mean, again, when people ask me that, because what films have inspired me, Have Plenty will always come up just because of the style. And the fact that you had Babyface, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, prolific music producer, actually producing this film. Okay, then. Fascinating. He had a cameo in the film. He had Lauren Hill in the film as well. Nice. It's just a film. You just think, wow. And this is when, obviously, in America, they're kind of, far ahead in terms of bringing black people together on screen and off screen and getting the finances, the story craft and everything together. Yeah, so, but I, I, was, I was just going to say, yeah, for Britain is a bit, well, Britain is a bit behind, isn't it? Because I guess you've got moguls like Tyler Perry and you've got other actors that have got now got their own big studios and like that sort of, I guess sure. they've been doing it a long time, haven't they? Sure. But just from a factual point of view, obviously America's got a population of over 340 million and then obviously in the UK, you've got yeah. 65 odd million people. So in terms of the numbers. Yeah, the sheer numbers. To start with. But that doesn't negate from the fact that as a group of peoples, and I was saying to someone earlier today that it's very easy to homogenize all black people as one group. Mm-hmm. But there are obviously different groups. And within those different groups, there are different um, ways of seeing the world. So, you know, for, for most black people, they've come from a place of oppression. Um, for a fortunate group of black people, they've not come from a place of oppression, which allows them that opportunity to think differently about the world and put yeah. that work on film or whether it be through books. And so those, those are the stories that we need to see more of because obviously it, it only it's only so much that you think, Another slave film, I don't want that. Another crime film, I don't want that. Surely there must be other stories. So although I mentioned gag tapes, which is about a carjacking, you've got Have Plenty, a romantic comedy. And I guess over the past 20 odd years that I've been doing black cinema, most black films have fallen into those two kind of genres. Uh, yeah. Obviously there has been scope for other stories um, to be told. Um, and long may that continue. But, you know, that requires the whole industry at large to be able to move the needle. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I it was just picking up on what you were sort of saying with um, gang tapes. I think that's quite interesting in terms of how the perspective of it was filmed. And that it was a rapper probably bringing sort of a different perspective than maybe a film director would. Because I don't know, like you maybe assume the rappers have lived the lives that they are sort of talking about. And it's a very different sort of perspective that you may be seeing from it, which I really I'm actually going to watch it when after we finish this, I'm going to write down the films we do talk about <laughs> and put them on a list to watch. That, yeah, yeah. reminded me of an interesting story um, about Gantix because the director of Gantix is actually white, a guy called Adam Rip. Okay, uh, and I kind of fell into the trap of thinking a black director must have made this film, but when I, <laughs> when I 
a white guy. I just had to know more about it. Um, I caught up with him earlier this year and just knowing that the anniversary was coming and asking him what plans have you got? Is there going to be a sequel? Is he going to spin off into TV? Because that's what everyone else is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he mentioned that before it got to um, shooting, that they were um, he approached Dr. Dre to put money into the film. And for some reason, Dr. Dre wasn't interested. Okay. So it would have been fascinating had Dr. Dre got involved in the film, just how much more big and how much greater the legacy would have been of that particular film. Yeah, it would have been very interesting, wouldn't it? Because it, it just wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same film, would it? It would be something completely sort of new and different. Um, which is yeah, very interesting. And I like how you um are talking about having the diversity in black cinema because there's there's so many movie genres. I mean, nothing is an original idea, but you're able to mix new things together and create something that is new. Um well, yeah, new to a certain extent. Um, I think some of my favorite black films, um, if Bill Street could talk, um, like that's a one is beautifully crafted movie and beautiful how it looks and everything, but just even the actors are phenomenal and the score and the cinematography is all sort of quite stellar. Absolutely, absolutely. And that was a young Kiki Palmer, was it not? In the- I'm not so sure what the but I do love Kiki Palmer. So she's in is it dope now? I haven't seen that film yet, actually. You've not seen um, dope. No, I haven't seen Dope yet. With uh, what's his name? It was someone else in Bill Street? Um, I think it might have been someone else. But no, yeah, I mean, I mean Jordan Peele. You oh know, no, that's he, it, not Dope. <laughs> no, there's so many different types. But yes, but yeah, Jordan Peele. You know, um, I, I read an interview once where he shot all of his night scenes in Nope during the daytime. So. Interesting. You can imagine from a budget point, yeah, you know, you just wouldn't know that. But yeah, I guess their own kind of methods and getting the best out of people. And uh, Jordan Peele is no exception. No exception. And I, I think his rides is crazy because obviously he had the Jordan and Peele show or Keegan and Peele show. And then he's now gone on to direct sort of a few, maybe four films, but that have each been quite different from the mold of what you know black cinema to be. Like they're all sort of horror, thriller but comedy as well. And like, obviously everyone loved Get Out. Um, then you got Nope. And then there was the, I think it was Us as well. So he's very, he's, he's crafting a little corner of himself in terms of black horror sort of exploration as well, which is quite interesting and amazing to see quite frankly. And obviously it's something that the market agrees with as well, because they've mm. made money at the box office as well. So it, you know, with, with black filmmakers in particular, they, they always want to make films that they like, but it's whether the market likes it as well. So that is ultimately the the most important thing, whether you're a black filmmaker or not. You've got to make stuff that the market wants. And Jordan's kind of got that to a T at the moment. Yeah, he really has. I, I look forward to sort of seeing where his directorial career will go. Um, and even talking about black filmmakers that sort of are quite young, I know. Not even young, but I mean, Michael B. Jordan, he's young, but he's got his first directorial debut with Creed 3. Trailer came out yesterday and I was like, it looks really sick. And uh, Jonathan Majors as well in it. I was like, oh, I can see what you're doing. I'm looking forward to it because I think it'll be interesting, him sort of his take on Creed and Rocky and especially the third one as well, which is sort of, yeah, I think it'll be quite interesting. Well, obviously, 
boxing is something um, that I'm kind of heavily involved with at the moment with my own kind of directorial feature. Not yeah. Michael, it's Michael B. Jordan. But I'm, I'm, I'm currently in post-production on a documentary um, about the family of the boxer Joe Joyce, a British okay. boxer. Um, Joe's mom is uh, Nigerian and British, although Joe was born here. But um, Joe's family background from his dad's side of the family, um, Scottish Irish, and then mum's side of the family, Igbo Nigerian, which is where I'm from as well. So we've got yeah. similarities. And the story principally is about Joe's mother, who is blind, who was born blind. Okay. And our camera spent the last two years just kind of filming Marvel and obviously the family. Um, and just kind of that premise of imagining yourself being the mother of a boxer but not being able to see them fight in the ring that is going through and that's her name um and that's that's been the premise of the film so that's a film that people can look forward to seeing at the british urban film festival which is taking place in rich mix this coming november so you know when you think of creed 3 and my film absolutely marvelous and all the other great boxing films you can kind of roll off the back of your tongue, Rocky, Rambo, Raging Bull. Yeah, there's um, plenty. So there. many other. Boxing such a pipeline for great stories, and I'm sure Creed 2 will be no exception. Yeah, it's, it's that sort of like you go, like either you're the king and you go down and you have your redemption arc or like you're sort of coming up and then you're, like you're making your name. It's very, everyone loves, you can get behind the character, can't you? Like it's quite easy to get behind a sort of character like that that is knocked down coming back up because like it, it just speaks us as humans doesn't it we love a redemption story absolutely boxing's full of um redemption stories and it needs redemption at the moment but i digress but yes you know that, that's definitely <laughs> one to watch and it comes out in march um creed so but yeah i mean with michael b jordan Another guy's going into the directing space. You know, a lot of these actors are kind of pivoting. Jordan Peele came from a comedy background. He started out in mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live. It's kind of like a very fertile ground for talent. And it's not easy to write comedy. So again, mm-hmm. it kind of speaks to the of um, Jordan at the box office, being able to kind of merse comedy and horror. Um, you know, in many ways, horror is kind of the easiest film to put together because all you have to do is kind of shock your audience as long as you've yeah. got that kind of element then you did but th- there's so many more kind of facets to making a, a horror film that kind of yeah. grips its audience and especially like a layered God no without wanting to kind of blow his trumpet too much you know Jordan's kind <laughs> of master yeah, no, he has. And it's just, and it's mad how quickly he's done it. So I, that it'll be very interesting to see the progress, all of them. As you're saying, like the actors, like I think John Boyega's got his own production company and wanting to uplift black voices as well and doing animation, which is like, that's just, that's just so cool. Like sort of going into your own space, but then doing, I, I don't know whether you said it was anime or just getting into that animation space as well and having black stories there you can tell sure. so much and be so creative with it too. Absolutely. Um, we've got Idris Elba now going into that space as well um, in terms of creating anime and various other genres. So, you, you know, there's room for everyone. It's, it's a great time to be a creative, especially a black creative, um, and long may that continue. 
long may that continue. And it's Black History Month as well, so it's only appropriate. Um <laughs> that is being discussed. Um I guess uh in terms of your your experience and sort of your expertise within sort of black history, not black history, sorry, it just was in my brain, but in black film and TV. Um and you've, you know, you started um the British Urban uh Film Festival. There it goes. My brain is clicking again. Um, but I guess how did you get into that? Like for my audience, because you, I also saw your tagline on LinkedIn, which is like, I probably watched the most black films ever. Um, <laughs> which I think is just, a, it's a flex, definitely. It's a definitely a good flex to have too. But how did you get sort of into that world and into that space? So kind of from a young age, I've always loved um, watching television and it's from there watching drama in the 80s and 90s, programmes like Tales from the Unexpected, The Bill, The Gentle Touch, obviously you had your soaps as well. It really didn't occur to me that there wasn't black people on screen at the time. There was one or two, which are kind of still working today in the business, like Rudolph Walker, for example, who's been on telly since the 1970s in, in the UK. So obviously at a young age, you're not kind of getting into the whole issue of why aren't there enough black people on TV. It's only when you come to grow and kind of immerse yourself in the industry that you then start to discover why these things happened and are yeah. still happening to a lesser extent. But for me, I just loved watching film and television and especially drama. And then I guess when there was an opportunity to kind of study it, um, took a degree at the University of West London, which is situated um, five minutes away, literally from Eating Studios, which is obviously synonymous with film. Um, so you had that environment to really just kind of develop your kind of personality. Um, and for me, I, I, I always wanted to create my own stories, create my own companies to get these stories out there. Not just stories, but just programs in general. I had a fascination with formats. Mm. You know, what did I want? What did I want to see in the cinema? So again, once you're in a position to kind of learn how these things work in terms of setting up production companies, developing formats, developing um, contracts, copyrights, all of that kind of side of the business, that's what I started doing from a very early age. And then when I, I guess when I realized um, what's happening with black film is the thing as black film, who are the black filmmakers doing stuff? Um, I was able to find this out through my time as a youth member at the National Film Theatre, as it was called back then in the late 90s. Obviously, it's now called BFI Southbank. Um, for those who are around in the 90s, they'll know what NFT um, mm -hmm. stood for. So I was a young member back then. I, yeah. I saw an album on the shelf in the library, you know, it called Black Filmmaker Magazine. And I thought, wow, here we go. This must be it. Um, then I obviously read the magazine and I saw Menlik Shabazz's name in there. I thought, wow, is that the Menlik Shabazz who did Bohemian Illusion? So before you know it, you, you've kind of seen the answer. Um, and then I went to film festivals that they had annually every September in London, got to meet Menlik in the flesh. Um, and because of who I am, I just said to my, I said to him, is there any work? Can I work for you? Um, and then the rest of nice. the say is history. So he gave me a summer job. Um, first day in the office, the door was unlocked. Um, walked straight in. It was like Christmas Day. He had videotapes, VHSs, DVDs all over the place, or black films. And I thought, wow, 
okay, this is yeah. this is what I want to do. <laughs> um, what was um, after that? Your, what was your first day like, if you don't mind me asking? This was the first day. Literally, the the front door. There was no one there. No one had locked the door, and it was kind of like, wow, I'm gonna watch all these films. And because I had that kind of company, there was lots of kind of email addresses and phone numbers hanging about of people and companies. And I thought, I'll take those. So I wrote all that down. When the title came in the future, I'll just kind of tap into those contacts. But obviously I had to then develop a reputation and a credibility because obviously you can't just cold call people and say, hey, (laughs) but obviously I had a a passion for film and TV anyway. So as I was able to build that up through working at uh, Black Filmmaker Magazine and then on the film festival, Obviously, developing that skill set, organizing seminars, workshops, talks, award ceremonies, um, then became the foundation uh, to work for the Screen Nation Film and TV Awards, which I did in 2004. I'm working for Charles Thompson, who also worked at Black Filmmaker Magazine at the time. So, in terms of environment, I, I kind of had the perfect environment, you know studying my degree next to Eating Studios, working for a black film organization, just kind of the perfect environment um, to kind of then launch Buff in 2005 when I attended the Prince's Trust Urban Music Festival. Um, And I said to my friend at the time, if a white guy, Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, um, can organize it with 16,000 black people, you know, it's cool. Why can't we as black people do the same thing? Um, so that kind of concept of an urban music festival then became an urban film festival. And it was kind of easy as that, really. Buff then set itself up as a company and then as a festival in 2005. Um, and obviously, as we've been talking about, I was just kind of saying, where is there a safe space or a place for black film to be championed? And I kind of created that solution through the platform of Buff, and here we are 17 years on, where we still have the form for black film to be championed, celebrated, and showcased on a consistent basis and level, because we not only are we celebrating black British film, but we're also celebrating black film from around the world, whether it's from the United States, Nigeria, Ghana, Australia, South Africa, India, you know, I mean, this year alone, we've had submissions from over 27 nations, which is... Wow, that is staggering. We've come a long way, but it's all come from that passion that I've had as a child. Yeah, definitely. And while you were talking, like, it was just thinking of sort of being the change that you want to see. Like, you just even asking yourself that question of, listen, if Prince Charles, well, King Charles can do this, then why can't we, someone in our community that knows our people? Um, and, you know, you took the leap and you did it. Um, so, I mean, amazing, which is, and congratulations, because 17 years is no small feat either. <laughs> Um, and I imagine you wanted to go on for even longer than that. So congratulations for all of that as well. No, thank you. I mean, um, I, I stepped down from kind of the day-to-day role of the festival um, technically two years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's now succeeded by Justin Chinure, who's an actor. And um, his day job, he works for Renaissance Studios, um, who are developing formats um, with Channel 4 so he's very much in the industry 
And, and Dustin's been around for years, um, had his own TV show on current TV, which for people of a certain age was a kind of a TV channel funded by the then Vice President Al Gore. And Dustin okay. had a show on there back in the years. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of Justin's kind of start. And then he worked on a show called You Got Jokes, which was a very successful DVD um, back then. Um, but yeah, Justin's like done I've various bits. Somewhere. Oh, sorry, go yeah, on. You've probably seen a DVD of You Got Jokes somewhere. It might be hanging about on YouTube somewhere. But yeah, Justin was involved with that. Um, and then he was an actor in Venus versus Mars, which was kind of one of the first big black webisodes to kind of explode in, in the mid 2010s. So Venus versus Mars, romantic drama written by uh, Babi Sacco and produced by Purple Gecko, um, which is a triumvirate of black creators. So you had Babi Sacco, the writer, and then you had the producers, Femi Oyinirin, um, who obviously went on to do the intent along with his collaborator, the late Victor Adiboden. Um, and so they developed Venus versus Mars. Justin was an actor in that. And, you know, I guess in the UK, uh, I've been very fortunate, along with my wife, Claire, to develop some great relationships with some very talented people. You know, Justin being one, Babby and Femi, the late Victor being others, and so many others, which I could kind of reel off over the course of this podcast. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, relationships are like black oil. You know, it's, it's very important to hold on to those relationships. And what the festival has been able to do um, through having the showcase of the annual um, event is to see um, the journey that filmmakers and writers have made. Um, and that's really been possible because of the fact that diversity is now something that the industry has caught up with in many ways. You know, it's, it's been a, it's never been a great time to be in the industry as a black creative. So in many ways, my work is done um, in terms of being that figurehead for diversity and representation, because it, it seems obvious that the whole industry understands how basic that is. Let me not say important. This is, it's fundamental. It's basic. Yeah represent uh, black experiences and just people that have felt marginalized for so long. It, it, it just makes sense to make sure that those voices are heard. And not only are they heard, but they're heard on a level that society can embrace and empathize with because there is, there continues to be a lack of empathy in, in certain um, arenas. You know, film and TV has just about been able to grasp that nettle um, I can't speak for other areas like politics, for example. Um, I know sport, there's been lots of progress made in sport, but, um, you know, in, in many areas, there is so much more work to do. But um, as far as I'm concerned, I, I've done as much as I can. Yeah. I've with Bath, obviously with BFM. So I've been at this yeah. for 20 years and, you know, I'm now making my own films. My wife, Claire, is a successful film and TV director. Just finished her first block as a series director on Hollyoaks. And congratulations to her. Yes. No, so it's an exciting time for the Animus Igwe family. So, you know, it, like I said, it's a great time to be alive. And it's great to see what Buff will evolve into under the stewardship of Dustin over the coming years. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and mate, you've worked hard enough. <laughs> you do deserve to, to 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 follow your to follow your passions and sort of as you were saying now, you're getting into the filmmaking sort of world into it. So um it's always good sort of when you see what has been built now that the next generation takes it and it just it continues the legacy of it, really, doesn't it? Like it it makes it endure past just one person. Yeah, I mean, as long as marginalised people feel marginalised, they'll always be buff. So until we stop talking about that, then buff will continue to to exist. So let's just hope that um, people can be met on a level playing field as far as film and TV is concerned. Yeah, 100%. Um, In terms of, as we were saying, you have been around for a while and been doing this for a while. What are some of maybe the... um, I guess for the people that you've seen, the young directors that you've seen and the young actors that you've seen, like maybe what what has stood out to you or maybe what story has stood out to you from seeing them maybe as young budding filmmakers to where they are now and sort of their evolutions and stuff? It's a really interesting question. Um, I guess because I've been doing it for such a long time, it's very hard to pinpoint one or two people Um, but what I would like to do at this point is kind of bring up, um, my wife in terms of her story and her journey, because that is in itself, because initially, um, she came out of Lambda and wanted to be an actress and she soon realized that there wasn't the roles for her. And if there were roles, there weren't speaking roles, um, especially Mm. a a black female. Um, and, and that's been a kind of a a bugbear of mine in terms of the fact of a lack of black female representation. Um, and so in many ways, Buff, and it, if it wasn't for Buff, I wouldn't have met her. So the fact that she's now my wife means that I'll be forever grateful to my own film festival for finding yeah. my <laughs> That's the ultimate like setup, isn't it? <laughs> it is the ultimate setup. I mean, that should be a film. I, I remember we, we had, the, we were at a dinner um, a few years ago with Michaela Cole and um, when we told her this story, she said uh, a film should be made about you two alone. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you want to make a film about me and my wife, we're all ears. Uh, <laughs> so because of the fact that um, my wife couldn't see herself in the street, she then went off into skincare. Uh-huh. So, um, she developed her own skincare business, um, which then had a successful um, journey with um, businesses in Harley Street. She was featured in the Sunday Times and she was honoured by the Queen for Serum Sister Dermatology. Damn. Um, by this time we were married. Um, and then at that point, she decided to pivot back to film because obviously by then she had known about me and the festival. And again, going back to that word environment, um, she then felt comfortable to then kind of put the skincare business to one side and write a story about something that was very close to her heart, which was connected with skincare and obviously with everything that she had gone through as well. She then made uh, the film No Shade in 2018, which is a film about colorism and the issue of skin bleaching, um, something that is very kind of prominent in black communities. And because obviously she had a skincare business, she was very qualified to tell that story. Yeah, definitely. And And that was a film that we, created out of Buff Studios, which was Buff Originals at the time. And I guess four years ago, Buff was in a kind of different place whereby 
already then we kind of thought that our work was done. What was the next thing that we could do from Buff? And it was to develop our own production company so that we could then tell our own stories. Because obviously for up to that point, we've been showcasing other people's stories, but myself and my wife are first and foremost creatives. So we've got our own stories that we want to bring to the world. And that was kind of one of the many factors that went into making No Shade. Um, and we did that in 2018 and she kind of got her mojo back in the industry. And as I said earlier, she's now a director on Hollyoaks um, and she'll be um, directing the 6,000th episode. Um, wow. For those that are in some numbers and significance, um, I've actually seen a sneak peek of the 6,000th episode and it's, it's well worth watching. Well worth watching. I would say that, but just from a... A neutral point of view, if I can put it as fine as detail like that, it, it's, it can be neutral, but <laughs> no, it's hard. It's hard. But um, you know, Hollyoaks is a great kind of um, launching pad for directors, um, and I'm sure when people see Claire's episode in December, they, they will be mightily impressed. Um, and obviously, with what she's done with No Shades, and obviously where Buff has played its role in that as well. Again, it's just a great legacy um, that I'll be leaving behind. Um, and obviously my film coming out in November as well. You know, it's kind of, it's good that we're kind of moving on into our space of telling our own stories. And Claire's stories in itself is one that's fascinated me. Yeah, no, it definitely. And I think like tackling sort of... Um, the like not the concept, but I guess in terms of tackling colorism um within the black community and sort of relating her own experience with it too, um, is a good story. It's a great story to tell because I feel like a lot of people, um, I don't know whether I would say it's mainly just women that sort of struggle with it, but I'm sure it's also within men too, but that you've you're tackling a topic that can really sort of be detrimental to sort of how you view yourself as a black person, just how you view yourself anyway. Cause even in, I went to Thailand and they were saying, don't buy toothpaste or, you know, face cream because it's all got whitening in. And like, you can see that colorism just everywhere within, within the world, really. Um, well, I mean, in India, it's, it's massive with the whole caste system there as well. Colorism is yeah. extremely prevalent there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so it's amazing that she sort of took that on um, and that has came out as well. I, no shade, that's another one to write down as well. So I'll be watching that too. Where can I watch it? Where can people watch it anyway? And not just me, but everyone else. The No Shade is on various platforms right now. It's on iTunes. It's on Genre TV in North America. It's on Bohemian Euphoria. Um, and it will be on other platforms as well. But if you go to our website, bossstudios.co.uk, that's where you can stay up to date with No Shade, where you can see it, as well as my film, Absolutely Marvellous, and future projects on the Buff Studio slate. So yeah, you can watch it. As of right you can watch it. Nice. See, everyone, I can watch it and everyone else can watch it as well. Um, how are you feeling about, because November's close, like this year has absolutely flown by. Um, how are you feeling about sort of a feature film of yours coming out? Well, I've always wanted to make films. So I guess for, for people that are kind of listening to this podcast, um, I've always wanted to be a director. And obviously through our discussion, you'll know that I was kind of roped into 
the film festival side of it, the producing side of it, through having your own production company. But deep down, I've always wanted to tell stories um, and obviously making absolutely marvellous um, it's just brought all those creative juices flowing again. And especially documentary, which is kind of non-fiction um, at its rawest. You know, you're documenting something happening in real time. Um, and the story is very unique. You know, you've got a boxer in Joe Joyce who's on the rise as a heavyweight. He's undefeated. And then you've got his mother who's blinded. And you've got his brother, who I've not mentioned, who's who was very talented. He came out of brick school, performed as a young Michael Jackson. Um, oh, wow. 10 years old. So that's what audiences have got to look forward to in this film. But then you've got the fact that because Marvel is blind, um, going back to what I said about marginalised people, the world was not built for blind people. So if you can imagine living your whole life 93% blind, how do you deal with that first and foremost? And then how do you then move on with your life? How do you navigate life? And uh, with Marvel, it's a fascinating story because you'd never know she was blind if you met her. She, she mm. doesn't, she, it's not a burden to her. Um, and that's what fascinated me when I got to know Marvel through the festival, um, which is a story in itself, because we showed a film about Muhammad Ali, um, showed the film twice, actually. We showed it first in 2014. So this is another film we should watch. It's called The Trials of Muhammad Ali. The Trials of Muhammad Ali, okay. It's one of the best documentaries ever told about um, Muhammad Ali. And it dealt with the seven years in his life when he literally gave everything up um, because he refused to fight for the US Army in Vietnam. And because of that, they stripped him of his world heavyweight title, which he was at the time he was 22 and he became world champion. Then literally a year later, he was asked to fight and he said no. And obviously everyone knows the story. Those that are familiar with Muhammad Ali will know what happened next. And this film deals with what happened in his life personally in mm -hmm. the years. You know, the breakdown of his marriage, the fact that he was blacklisted in his own country. He wasn't getting work. He wasn't getting interviews. And he ended up being on Broadway. There's some fascinating video of him. He's been on Broadway. I didn't know that about Muhammad Ali. Not many people know about that. So... When I remember when people watched it at the time, they couldn't a whole Muhammad Ali with all his talking, yeah, <laughs> singing. It's like surreal. That is surreal. The measure of the man, you know, it, it was um, even in that moment he had had to still exist. He still had to put food on the table. Yeah, and then obviously he was pardoned by the president many decades later. But by time by that time he developed. Parkinson's disease, and then you'll see he lit the Olympic flame in Atlanta, which for me is one of the most, you know, humbling moments I've ever kind of witnessed. Um, yeah. I can only imagine what it would have been like in that stadium, seeing Muhammad Ali light the Olympic flame. And what yeah, true. Um, and obviously in terms of what he stood for then, um, very hard to emulate. You know, I was actually having this discussion with Claire this morning. I think the closest person that's kind of, come to that is Colin Kaepernick um, and my wife was talking about the film that Ava DuVernay made a documentary about Colin Kaepernick Just, what was it called? Um, you put me on the spot here um, <laughs> but yes no. you should go and watch that on Netflix on Netflix um, I know he did another film with Spike Lee um, as well but um, yeah to the point about Colin Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali obviously you can't compare the two but that, that's kind of 
how I feel about the industry right now. I, it's great that I'm telling my own stories and the fact it's about boxing, which is something that I'm passionate about. And I can't wait for audiences to kind of sample that um, in November. Um, and then my next film after that, I'm looking to kind of do a sports story to do with football, which is my other passion. Yeah. That's something I'm looking forward to kind of getting stuck into over the coming years. That and so, kind of being a family man. So there, there's never a dull time. No, that doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Even though you moved on from Buff, you're still doing other things. You're still going. Um, but it's, it's, I guess it's just a different phase in your life now, isn't it? Where you're sort of being able to follow those passions um, and just explore a bit more of your... Like, obviously, you're exploring your creative side throughout, but now it's maybe more of a full expression of that. Um, so that's brilliant, yeah. Um, and yeah, Muhammad Ali, that's just, it's really unfortunate that that sort of happened to him because like, obviously he made, like, I think he'll always be cemented in history, but you never know what he could have achieved purely just for not wanting to fight a meaningless war, which you just sort of like, and I'm glad he stood for his values because I think that also just adds to who he is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a madness when you think about it that the government could just do that and the impact it can have on someone's life, absolutely. And obviously, with Colin Kaepernick, um, it's actually a series, it wasn't actually a one off, it was kind of a series called Black and White, yeah. And that's it's a fascinating kind of parallel, you know. Colin literally lost everything, no American football team offered him a job, he was literally blacklisted for oh, yeah, the guy that took the knee, wasn't it? All because he took the knee. So he took the knee. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating parallels, you know, for something seemingly um, trivial, but equally symbolic in terms of the actions that Colin Kaepernick took and the price that he paid, um, ultimately. I mean, obviously he found his feet because, you know, through the film, working with Aaron and with Spike Lee, um, and obviously Nike got involved as well. So he's kind oh, of yeah, many ways. I mean, can you imagine what um would have happened if Muhammad Ali was around now? Yeah, he would he would have been eating it up, wouldn't it? He <laughs> have been in Broadway, no, it definitely. <laughs> definitely. And uh, you, you were mentioning Ava DuVernay. Um, she's also one of those, I like not even up and coming because she's been around, but like sort of just someone that is killing the game in sort of doing her own thing. Um, and yeah. like, I've got, there's a company that does Girls on Tops um, and I've got an Ava DuVernay on it. And they also done like Carrie Fisher, another sort of female, um, like empowerment or just fe- important females, um, which is really interesting. Um, there's also something else I was going to say, but I completely forgot it, but... <laughs> I mean, I guess with Ava, in many ways, she, she was a late starter. I mean, she only got into the business at 32. Mm. And coming from a marketing background, and it's very important to kind of have these backgrounds and these experiences. You know, so I mentioned Claire with the skincare business, Jordan with the comedy, and for Ava, it was marketing and PR. So obviously that kind of helped her when she started out with Middle of Nowhere. And then she was seventh choice to direct Selma, which is obviously her break. Oh, yeah, she was, wasn't she? 2014 and that was a great film you know the fact that it didn't win any Oscars um, still kind of irks me but um, she was wasn't it was it did it come out the same year as 12 Years a Slave or no uh, no um, 12 Years a Slave came out a year before 2013 a year before yeah 
uh, actually 2014, and then Selma came out 2015 oh, because yeah. it was the 50th anniversary of the Alabama Martyrs in 1965. Ah, okay, yeah. And she did. It was the first film ever made about Martin Luther King because when the PR was coming out for the film, it transpired that Steven Spielberg owned the rights to all of Martin Luther King's speeches. Which meant what? Which meant that the film couldn't be made unless Spielberg made it. So they must have come to an agreement. Or what they ended up doing was obviously they, although they focused on Martin Luther King, obviously the, the story is called Selma. So they kind yeah. of consciously dealt with Montgomery, Alabama and kind of the neighborhood. Around it a little bit, yeah. So found a way around it. And Ava, whose family is from Montgomery, Alabama, was able to kind of tap into that as well. So, so it was... And goodness knows how that Selma film would have turned out. Yeah, it was sort of perfect timing, perfect person. Like she, she was probably the right person to take the helms of that. Um, we all should really Everyone should be was the perfect actor as well because yeah, he was. He was a father of four children, as was Martin Luther King. So he could literally into know, that. Yeah, Martin Luther King, one of his greatest performances for me. Mm. Why is but I think the real question is why does Spielberg have the rights to Martin Luther King's speeches? How do you even get the rights to speeches? Like, <laughs> well, there's a challenge for you, Tina, to try and interview Spielberg because I, I obviously can't speak for him, so <laughs> I can get that exclusive with Spielberg. Um, I'll, I'll be the first one in the queue to find out the answer to that question. Awesome. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll I'll try and find I'll try and find it somehow, somewhere. Be like, glad. One, how did you pull off such a feat? But then also why at the same time? Like, why do you have them? Yeah, it is. It is. Um as you said, in terms of a buff that you've had, especially for this year, that you've had submissions from 27 different countries. Um and you've got sort of diaspora from different places in the world. But then also people that have still stayed in, you know, African countries and that are still native to their area. Um I guess maybe are there any similarities and differences between this either the stories that are being told amongst sort of different diasporas? Um yeah, like what sort of similarities and differences have you seen? That's a good question. I mean, it, it, for the first time, um, I've I've not seen any of the submissions this year. Okay. Like, However, I did go to our opening night, kind of our media day back in August, where Dustin was able to kind of showcase three of the selections in one evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I saw, the stories were very diverse. You know, you had one film from... Uh, the United States, you had a music video from Nigeria and then you had a feature film also from Nigeria, but the storylines were very contrasting. Um, You had stories of redemption, hustle, aspiration, um, mockery um, in terms of the colonialism. So all those kind of themes were kind of very prevalent in the films. You had kind of romance as well, though you don't see it coming in one of the short films. Um, the boy who couldn't, the boy who couldn't sing, and then the other film, the boy who couldn't feel pain. <laughs> so if you get a chance to watch that at the festival, do watch it. The other film I was referring to was Collision Course, feature film, um, uh-huh. by Balanle Austin Peters. 
and uh, wetting Duguay's, wetting Duguay's, uh, what's it called? Wetting Mango Du, which is the music. Uh-huh. Again, you will see that at the festival, so these three films. Um, but yeah, equally diverse, all those films, um, just kind of three out of 92 films that are showing at the festival in November. So like I said, I'm not seeing any of the other films. So mm-hmm. those that are going to the festival at Rich Mix, they're going to be in for a treat because the fact that Justin's able to put on that many films just, just tells you uh, the variety and difference in terms of storytelling, how the stories are being told, where the stories are coming from. And, and that's kind of a legacy of the festival. The fact that we're able to um, attract such a wide kind of range of stories and filmmakers. Yeah, 100%. And it does, I think the stories of um, people in their own countries, like people like creatives in Nigeria, in Zimbabwe, where I'm from, Rep, um, <laughs> and Ghana, um, it, those are the stories which you don't get to see as often. Like, obviously, we get, we know about the American Black experience, we know about the British Black experience, but we don't know about the African experience, the Nigerian, the Ghanaian experience, like from the impacts of, you know, colonialization and things like that, but also just how the countries are in this current moment too. Yeah, I mean, you've got Africa, you've got 54 countries in Africa. So, you know, that, that's 54 different um, experiences. You know, Ethiopia, you've got Kenya, uh, rich in storytelling culture. You've got Zambia, so many, so, you know, so many, yeah. <laughs> I'm scratching the surface in many ways. So, you know, in many ways, Africa is the next frontier for storytelling. You know, you've got those kind of power bases in Nigeria, South Africa, um, Ghana, but like I mentioned, Kenya, they just had their first film um, out on Netflix. Um, Ethiopia's got a rich storytelling history as well. Um, you know, so it, it's a great time to be an African creative. You know, you've got all the big streamers now coming in there. Netflix, Disney, Amazon Prime. So, you know, it's, I mean, you know, Nollywood, which has kind of survived for this time without needing the West. True, uh, true. Everyone wants a piece of it. So it, it's it's a great time, great time. It, it is a great time. And South Africa also doing bits as well. So they're, they're all doing their things as well. Um, it's something which is quite similar which is, I guess, related to what we we're just talking about. I, I showed my cousin, um, who's actually moved here from Zimbabwe recently. Um, so it's been really interesting just getting to know him and to vibe with him. Um, so I was showing him, I was like, oh, I'm going to be talking to Emmanuel today. This is this is, this is is it. And he was like, oh, man, this, this guy's well-versed. And I was like, if you've got any questions, uh, let me tell me so then I can ask him to uh, see if he can answer any for me. Because I thought it would be interesting from sort of his perspective. Um, so you just asked me, um, how are um, how are best African, um, how best aspiring African filmmakers in the English diaspora, sort of like what access is there for them to for filmmaking, like getting into filmmaking for those communities? That's a good question. Um, so one of the ways that Buff has tried to address that, and obviously I can't speak for other organizations, mm-hmm. uh, is through our relationship with the AMRA Awards, the African Movie Academy um, Awards, which has evolved out of the African Film Academy. So that, for the last 17 years, has 
showcase the best in African cinema, not just on the continent, but across the diaspora, wherever mm-hmm. African film remained. Um, Amara has been at the epicenter of that through the ceremony and through the kind of outreach work that they've been starting to do um, across the continent. Um, but in the UK, what we've tried to do through the festival is to encourage more African-based filmmakers to submit their films to the festival. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously as an African but, but born here, it's very important that um, that um, showcase is put out there for a global audience. And hopefully through listening to this podcast that that filmmaker or other filmmakers can submit their work to Buff because not only will it be showcased by Buff if it gets selected, because obviously we have a very rigorous uh, jury um, process. So if it gets past that, then one of the kind of incentives is that um, if it's a film by an African-based filmmaker, it can be put forward for an African Movie Academy Award, which is actually taking place um, in October. So at the time of this recording, the actual award ceremony would have actually gone out. But the Amers have the award ceremony every October. Um, and for the next three years, it's taking place in Lagos. And I know that for this year's event, um, several kind of African-based filmmakers whose films have been shown at Buff have been nominated for an AMR award. The likes of Ogo Opui, who's been nominated, Obi Emelonye, um, who were honouring at Buff this year for 20 years, um, outstanding contribution, and Balanley, Austin Peters, um, whose film Collision Course would be showing. So in many ways, Buff is trying to kind of bridge that gap so people can see that pathway for African-based filmmakers through connecting with the British Urban Film Festival. Yeah, that's awesome. That's I think he'll be very satisfied <laughs> with that response. Um, I I wanted to uh, ask you in terms of before we got onto the conversation, before we got onto uh, the episode, um, you were telling me about some something that the Financial Times um has that was it the Financial Times I think it was that is the, yeah it was um. And I guess, would you just be able to tell my audience about that um, a little bit? Because I think that's definitely something that should be praised. Um, also, quick question. Was it, is Claire your wife? Was that the one that gave you the answer for that film when you were thinking about it? Yes, it was. So, yes. Yes. Credit her for that, yes. <laughs> yes, because because I watch so many films and just kind of, there's so many films that just kind of pass you and kind of think, what's that film again? It's kind of, it's one of those things. It's one of those ones. <laughs> Plus the fact that you have two children as well, you get a uh, baby brain. Um, quite constantly. So I know it's an excuse, but that's, that's kind of, <laughs> not just kind of being on the spot as I usually am. But uh, going back to the financial times, so how that all came about. So we, we were put forward for the Black Cultural Archives Future Leaders campaign um, earlier in the year. Um, so obviously, um, the chair of the committee, Dr. Yvonne Thompson, CBE, um, so I've been kind of witnessing our work, both myself and Claire's in film and TV. And this was the year where she wanted to kind of celebrate that. So myself and Claire, along with the 38 others, um, were showcasing the Financial Times. So again, for those listening to this podcast, if you are able to get a copy of the Financial Times dated the 19th of October, you'll be able to see a full page ad. Um, Also, um, if you're fortunate enough, um, there was billboards around the country um, in association with Clear Channel UK 
where you'll be able to see um, our portraits. And there's an exhibition happening at the Black Cultural Archives, where again, you'll be able to um, see and find out more about the Future Leaders campaign. Um, but that will evolve into kind of more work, more outreach work to do with the Black Cultural Archives, um, which has been going for 40 years. But obviously that is a very important monument in terms of preserving the history of uh, Black British creatives and just anything to do with kind of Black history in the UK. And so anything where we're documenting Black history, um, I'm always going to be a big champion of. And the fact that we've been celebrated and um, awarded uh, by the Black Cultural Archives is something that um, me and Claire are extremely humbled to receive. Um, but that's only the beginning, you know, the award is great, but the work is more important and the legacy that you leave behind. And obviously through Buff, you've left that legacy and obviously we're excelling in other areas, but also it's to educate the next generation um, to kind of espouse the values of a strong work ethic, um, to believe in yourself 100% and uh, to just keep persevering because you just never know who's watching or listening and how they take that information um, and kind of use it for their own intents and purposes. So hopefully whoever's listening to this podcast, I hope they take as much out of it as I have in kind of speaking to you about it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. I hope, I hope we did. Uh, people do too as well. And congratulations to you and Claire. Um, Claire, if you can hear me, congratulations to you. Um, for both of, uh, for that, because I think it's amazing to be celebrating, um, the leaders of our generation. Wow. You, I mean, you're probably a generation above me, but <laughs> celebrating you guys for like sort of trailblazing in these areas. Like I think there's a quote, there's a quote of people saying, yeah, you have walked so others can fly um, or run. And that even like, I would say my parents have done that for me coming to come into England and stuff that I can only go and do what I can do and do because they've walked it. They've done the hard stuff. Um, and so thank you guys. And I thank my parents, but I also thank all the other parents and um, elders and leaders that have done that for us. Absolutely. I mean, you know, without our parents, well, we're not here, you know, and my yeah. parents are not here anymore. So they've kind of laid the foundation. Um, obviously, they've supported me um, in every way that they can. They didn't support me to start off with because obviously as African parents, they've got their own kind of visions for their children. Yeah. Hey, you want to go into movies? You want to be an actor? <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So I've kind of survived all of that. Um, but, um, you know, Without their support, I couldn't have achieved half of what I have done. So obviously I'll be eternally grateful to my parents. And I'm sure they're watching up from on high, just thinking, ah, imagine the Financial Times. <laughs> they would have been so gassed. It would have been on Facebook. They would have been telling all the relatives and everything oh. as well, wouldn't it? <laughs> from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m., they'll be on the phone going through their contact. Yeah. Yeah. By Financial Times, my son is there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I could easily see that happening. Um, that that yeah, that'd be their response. Um, I guess it's uh, I'll, I've got two more questions to ask you. Sure. Um, and I guess because it is Black History Month, um, I'm gonna add a, a little add on to this. But I was gonna say, um, how does Black History Month and Buff, but also just film and cinema, sort of 
marry or exist within each other? Like, what would you maybe say are your thoughts on that? Well, in, in many ways, uh, Buff was, is, and will always be an outlier. So even though you have Black History Month, Buff was, Buff was never created with Black History Month in mind. That wasn't kind of the end goal to be part of Black History Month, which has only been around since 1987. It's not been something that's been there for 50 or 60 or 100 years. It's only been yeah. around just over 30. Um and as I said and touched on earlier, it, my environment is what's allowed me to kind of develop Buff and it's allowed Buff to flourish, kind of learning all those experiences, working with people like Menelik Shabazz and the late Menelik Shabazz and Charles Thompson with Screen Nation. Um, and obviously studying my degree where I did, just all those experiences. And obviously I've met mm-hmm great people and friends along the way who've gone on to do great things in Nigeria, um, actors, creatives. So, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've, throughout this journey, I've met some great people. Um, obviously, my wife came through the festival as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in, in many ways, Buff has just kind of created its own path. Um, it's never needed permission. Um, and as I said earlier, the industry is now caught up in terms of what it means to be diverse and representative, both on screen and off screen. Um, and in many ways, if Buff wasn't there, I, I do strongly believe that we wouldn't be having these wider conversations about diversity and representation as far as black people are concerned. So, you know, we don't shout about it because we feel we don't have to. So it, it's mm. recognized by the Black Cultural Archives and also by by other people. Obviously, I was honoured for my services to Black Film by the then Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, um, in 2020. So, you know, the fact that you're recognised at the establishment is, you know, it's kind of, again, not looking for the validation, but it's good that people have seen the journey and seen the work and seen the impact that has been made um, through having the Festival of Light Buff. And in answer to your question about Black history and black cinema. It's about people seeing themselves being represented. And I think when you can see yourselves being represented in a way that agrees with your values and your passions, then it's a win-win for everybody. So, you know, Justin has got a great kind of um, legacy there to take on board. And obviously, because he's younger than me, he can speak to a younger generation Obviously, you've got the YouTube generation, you've got the streaming mm. generation. So in many ways, Buff will evolve and there'll be the next generation of filmmakers that will be coming from a digital background as opposed to the 35 millimeter background in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So, you know, film will continue to evolve and hopefully Buff will continue to evolve as well. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, that's what we hope for as well. Um before uh, we finish off, I always ask my guests sort of this final question. Um, but I guess for any sort of young black boy that's listening to this, or even young black man that's listening to this, how do you think this conversation or something you personally know yourself can sort them can help them with it, like an understanding of self, of themselves, and who they are in this larger world? Um, I read I read something the other day, kind of a quote. Um, which read, dreams are free, so why think cheap? You know, and that, that that's something that resonated with me because my 
late grandfather, when I met him for the first time 30 odd years ago, said to me, think high and you'll make millions, you know? So that's always stated me to kind of think high. And so for, for black boys listening to this podcast, black men, um, black people in general, just keep that level of thinking high in spite of what's happening around you in terms of circumstances and situations and pressure. Obviously we all deal with pressure in our own way. So in spite of that, in spite of those obstacles that will be coming, um, just keep thinking high because it will take you a long way. And ultimately it's what will set you up for life. Um, whether financially, not just financially, but socially, culturally, spiritually, you have to keep that level um, high because that's it's such a foundation uh, on which to kind of build your legacy on. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I don't even need to add any more onto that. Um, it was this, it was that dreams are free. So why think cheap? I, I like amazing. Whoever said that. Great. <laughs> Cause I think it's, it's very easy and visual to even think about, like it doesn't, you don't need to, like, if you're just thinking about it, even just on a surface level, it's like, yeah, why not? Like, why can't I do that? You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so thank you, Emmanuel, um, for coming onto the podcast and for joining me. Um, is there anything you want to plug before you leave? Um, you mean anything else I want to plug? So, anything uh, else? <laughs> I'll, I'll plug Absolutely Marvelous, which is showing at Rich Mix on Saturday, the 26th of November at seven o'clock. Um, tickets will be on sale via the Rich Mix website. Um, and then my wife Claire's Hollyoaks episode will be coming out in December. Two episodes will be coming out in December. You undershot her. You only said she was doing one. You didn't tell her she's doing two. two Come episodes. on now. Two episodes. <laughs> I might still stick on the six thousand, but yeah, <laughs> episodes five nine 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 and episode six thousand will be coming out on Channel Four and E Four on the eighth and ninth of December. Bro, bro, bro. That's, that's all to come in the next few weeks and months. So, yeah. All right. Hey, I was about to say, you yeah, plugged other things as well during it. So, um, that's good. Um, I'll put also links into the show notes um, to find everything we've talked about today and to find your website and to find the films we've discussed too. Um, I've got some TV to be watching, which is never a bad assignment, is it <laughs> really? Definitely. Um, so yeah, so thank you for joining me. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this as well. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. So Emmanuel, thank you for coming on to the podcast. It was really good to chat with you. And I hope my audience got a good listen from it. Audience, did you get a good lesson from it? Did you get good stuff from it? I hope you did. Um, even if the only thing you take away from this is that dreams are free, so why think cheap? Um, when I was listening back on this episode, um, I realized I was like, oh, whoever said that is amazing. And he told me he said it was his granddad. And I was like, ah, oh. like just when I was listening to it, I was like, why did I say that? Because he just told me who told him. Oh, gosh. Bit embarrassed listening back, but it's all good. It's all good. Um, but yeah, I think that's um, that's a really great way to sort of think about life. That, you know, dream as big as you can and try and reach for that and make the steps towards that, make the daily actions 
Um, there's a podcast that I really love listening to called um, the High Performance Podcast. Um, and it's a BT presenter, um, Jake Humphrey and um, Damien something. Sorry, Damien, I forgot your name. If you ever listen to this when I'm on the High Performance Podcast, I apologize. <laughs> um, but they talk about world-class basics um, and that, you know, there's things you can be doing every day that sort of build to, you know, the best person you can be or living a high-performance life. So I really like that. Um, so as Emmanuel was saying, you know, have those dreams and then apply those world-class basics and, you know, you'd be flying, hopefully. Um, but that's just something I, I hope for myself and I hope for you too. Um, I got a little bit on the tangent here. Um, but thank you very much for listening, guys. Um, I've got a few more episodes coming out in November. It is Movember as well next month. So I'm going to be doing some challenges for that and some um, mental health campaigns and stuff. So um, stay tuned for that. Um, I'm going to release a little episode on Tuesday. Um, that you know just sort of says what I'm doing for that November so um, everything will be in the show notes um, about this episode everything we talked about all the films and stuff like that um, and yeah all I can say is um, thank you for listening uh, I really hope you can share this podcast with somebody you know or rate and review it um I would, yeah, I'd really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you for listening. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening to this episode, guys. And um, we'll talk soon. Peace.